0: longest, shortest time is brought to you by Invite. Your genes can tell you if you're 12% French or 6% Italian. They can also tell you a lot about your future health. When you take an Invite genetic test, they search for meaningful health information, like whether you're at an increased risk for inherited cancer or heart disease. Based on your results, you may be able to take steps to potentially lower that risk. Learn more by visiting Invite.com. That's I N V I T A E.com. This is the Longest Shortest Time Podcast. I'm Hillary Frank. About a year ago, I moved from Philadelphia to New Jersey. And when we got to the new apartment, the movers were, you know, trying to sort stuff into the right rooms, like glasses in the kitchen, crib in the baby's room. And at one point, one of the movers comes up to me and he holds my sits bath in my face. And he says, I don't know where this goes. And... I kind of realized at that moment that, like, he and I are on two totally different sides of this line. Um, the line, I guess, being uh, knowing what a sits bath is for and not yet knowing what a sits bath is for. And um, if you're one of those people who doesn't know what a sits bath is for, a simple Google search should do the trick. Um, anyway, um, he's holding this sits bath up at me, and I kind of sheepishly tell him, you know, it. it goes in the bathroom. And, um, you know, this mover and I, we're probably about the same age. And, um, you know, like like this guy has no idea what my life has been like for the last few months since having a baby. And, um, you know, like before you cross that line of, of the weird darkness of early, early parenthood, there's no way that you can possibly know what lies on the other side, Right. Today, uh, we're going to talk to someone, a dad actually, who was thrust into this world much earlier than he'd expected.
1: Uh, My name is Tom Ketchkomethy.
0: Tom Ketchkomethy is this guy I used to work with when I lived in Philly.
1: And my daughters are Ellen and Jill. Ellen is 20 years old, unbelievably, and Jill is now 18 years old.
0: Tom mm-hmm. is unlike Don't anyone occur. else I've ever met. He's you know? got this incredibly goofy laugh, and he's self-deprecating to the no point um, where up. he tells stories, um, to, lots of stories that begin with the words,
1: I'm not proud of this moment.
0: Here, to, to give you an idea of what Tom is like and why I thought he'd be a good guest on this podcast, I'll let him tell you a story that I heard him tell at a dinner party back when I was eight months pregnant. And, and some things you should know before hearing this story, Tom and his wife Heidi started dating when they were freshmen in college, so very young. They they got married at 24, went on a honeymoon, came home and, and did fun things like um, cook nachos for dinner for a week straight just because they could. And then Tom shipped off to sea. Uh, He was in the Navy. This was his first major deployment, so he's going to be gone for a long time. And, um, you know, he he gets to make his first call home. And, you know, it's his first call. He's he's very excited to talk to Heidi.
1: And she sort of said, I've got news. And I said, what's that? And she told me she was pregnant. And it was so – I'm not proud of this moment. I'm just not – I think I pretty much just hung up.
0: Tom did come around to being excited about the baby pretty quickly. But remember, he's at sea, um, so he's not going to get to see Heidi in her pregnancy for a while. You know, he's still got several months on this boat. So the next time he sees Heidi, his ship is docked in the UK. Um, they're going to be there for a little while and have some time off. So Heidi comes over to take a little road trip together Um so Tom gets off the boat, and Heidi is walking down the pier toward him. She's four and a half months along at this point.
1: At four and a half months, she was definitely showing. And uh, and just thick, you know? You have that, it's just that thick look about the woman who was formerly who was formerly lithe and thin and everything you know everything it was like the the lack of waist and the and the the hips and the the thighs and it was just thickness that was that's what i remember it was like that word coming into my coming into my head was like thick it was everything just seemed thick um and that's what it was that doesn't
0: sound like a very flattering description (laughs) i know but you know
1: when you have it when you say it in a loving sort of way i mean when you think it in a loving way i even though that's the word i guarantee you i was thinking it in a loving sort of way (laughs) (laughs) i mean i'm i'm just being honest um but anyway what what let me just tell you one other thing that was amazing about that uh about that visit to the uk we were in edinburgh scotland we were laying there in bed one night and uh, I just had my hand on Heidi's belly and we were just chilling out and talking and everything. And I was like, whoa, what? <laughs> wait, well, that was new? And Heidi was like, did you feel that? And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was probably like a head or a foot or something, but it just felt like a little knuckle coming up and rubbing the underside of my palm. Um, and it was Heidi's first time actually feeling it outside her body. And we got to do it together in that one little window of time when she came over to visit me in the middle of a deployment, for heaven's sakes.
0: And then what's it like when Ellen's actually born? How, how, did, how did it go? How did, like, labor and delivery go?
1: Um, labor and delivery was, uh, you know, we'd done all the Lamaze classes, and we'd just, I mean, we'd read everything. I was just determined that this was going to be this co-production, you know, between Heidi and me, I was determined that I was going to be present in every way, you know, physically, emotionally and spiritually and psychologically and the, and the breathing and the, this and the coaching and the that. And, um, her stepdad um, was an anesthesiologist, so he had basically coached Heidi all of her life that anesthesia of any sort is essentially slow poison, and it's this intentional kind of poisoning of, of, the, of the body, and you avoid it at all costs, right?
0: Wow, even so, though that's what he did for a living.
1: That's what he did for a living, but he, you know, he was a geeky scientist about the whole thing, and he was also kind of a curmudgeon difficult guy. And it was just kind of like this—this this built-in paranoia about anesthesia. So, I mean, the the most that we were going to do was a local for a episiotomy. Was was the the most that was going to happen. We were just committed, right? And something like, I don't know, like the 24-hour mark or the 26-hour mark, Heidi was just spent. I mean, she the poor thing. I mean, She was just totally spent. There was nothing I could do. There was no hand-holding. There was no breathing. There was no nothing. She was miserable. She needed sleep. She couldn't pee. Her bladder almost burst at one point. They had a catheterizer. Um, you know, I mean, keeping all sorts of tabs on the baby because it was taking so long. And then, you know, um, they eventually got... The epidural done and the guy came in with the cart like it was nothing Heidi lost it I mean Heidi really really was affected by that she was curled up on her side in a c-shape the way you do and this thing is getting jabbed into her spine and and um and I was no help you know I mean I, I was no help I never felt so useless and uh you know here I go getting emotional but I don't like um I'm used to being useful, you know, and so anyway, she got the epidural and then they actually gave her a sleep aid, I think, and she slept in little snatches for a few hours and that was in the middle of the night and I got to wander around and be with myself. Uh, All of a sudden, I didn't feel ready for the baby because I couldn't even take care of her. I, I went down to the, I went down and I wasn't particularly religious at that time. I, uh, and I went down to the hospital chapel and I found Jesus and the whole thing <laughs> I did. I was, there was like one little old lady in the front row and I was in the back <laughs> and I'm looking around for something that might give me comfort basically going, throw me a freaking bone here, you know, it was just, um, and then delivery was okay. Um, you know, once she started pushing. It was okay, but everything that I did was wrong. Um, you know, it wasn't like Heidi was screaming "Get out of my face" or anything like that. Although she was screaming, uh, um, and even at me a couple of times about what to do or what not to do, but clearly it was about her, the physicians, and the thing that was inside that was about to come outside, and I was I was um, not even relevant until. Until after the baby was delivered, and then everything was fine. Everything was fine, Uh, except for the astonishing reality, um, 12 hours later, 18 hours later, or whatever, when we left the hospital, and nobody came with us, you know, I was kind of expecting the help to come (laughs) or something. It was like, (laughs) you've been around for this long, why the hell aren't you following me home? I mean, we certainly... Don't know what to do with a baby in our apartment. So um, where's the help?
0: <laughs> so, so what happened? Like, um, <laughs> who who was? What were your responsibilities in the beginning?
1: Um, uh, my responsibilities, I think, were about the same with both kids. Um, you know, I I tried to be as attentive as I could. Heidi breastfed f- f- for a full year, both kids, and. So we'd hear Ellen crying and I pretty much got out of bed, went over, got Ellen, um, changed her if she needed to be changed, uh, brought her to Hyde. Hyde would be there with her while maybe maybe I snoozed for 15 minutes or whatever while she fed. And then um, typically Heidi would give me the elbow and and go back to sleep and, and I would bounce the baby back to sleep, change her again if she needed to be, put her down, come back to bed. Hang um, on a
0: second, though. You just, you just said bounce the baby back to sleep like it's the easiest thing in the world. Like, oh, bounce, 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 put him back in the crib. Was oh it just God. like that? Oh, my
1: God. <laughs> no. Uh, when when Ellen was tiny little, I hated, like, with all of the vitriol and negative connotation that word can possibly carry, I hated the digital clock on the front of our stereo that we used to have because it would just stare at me and tell me what frickin' time it was in the middle of the night. And I'm making these endless laps in the living room, endless laps. And and I'd walk around, and I'd walk around, and I'd walk around, and it'd be like 2.13 a.m. And then I'd walk around in laps, bouncing, bouncing, bouncing for another, I don't know, day or two. And I'd go back by the clock and it would say 2 fourteen. And it was how could a minute
0: last that long? Um so so you were the night guy and then were you, were you still um in the Navy at yeah. that point?
1: Yeah, I was I was I went out to sea. Um so Heidi was well and truly on her own for large periods of time.
0: And weren't you a stay at home dad at one point?
1: Yeah, I was I was at home for two and a half years. So after Jill was delivered, and I still haven't told you the Jill labor and delivery well, tell, story.
0: Well, me, tell me the Jill delivery story.
1: Do you want to know? Yeah, I do. Um, Ellen was 23 months when Jill was born, and Heidi started to sort of feel like, hmm, I think I'm probably in labor, and we started making the calls. Anyway, so we went in, and uh, we were there by 11 o'clock, and I think Jill was Born, delivered, done deal at 2, 2.30 in the morning. It went uh-huh. quick. I mean, it was wow. the total opposite of Ellen in every way. I don't want to get your hopes up that it's going to be this way for you if you have a second kid or anything, but mm-hmm. uh, I really don't. But I was holding Heidi's hand, and I was bringing her through the contractions, and I was breathing with her, and I was telling her about riding a bike, Heidi used to be a cyclist, right? So we would talk about, you know, the last lap around the track or the last pull up the hill through the hard part of the contraction and then just come right back down with me. And all these, all these things that everything that I was doing was like exactly right. Um, and at one point I thought it was getting so serious and and the baby was crowning at that point that I really wanted a nurse or a doctor there and I had to let go and I had to like step out just for like five seconds. I had to step out and just call for somebody. And, and Hyde said that was like, she felt like she was spinning out in the middle of the universe uncontrolled, you know, because I wasn't there and that's how intense it was. And, and then I was back and, and then they were moving her and wheeling her into the delivery room because they actually didn't, it wasn't the same room. They had to wheel her from one place to the other. And, um, and they told me to like, put on this cap and put these little booties over my shoes because it was sanitary in there or whatever. And I was like, screw that. And I just went because, um, I mean, there was just nothing that was taking me away from her side and, and everything worked. There was no epidural. It was a local for the episiotomy. I was telling her what was going on. I was helping. And, and it was, I was, it was so present between the two of us, you know, it was truly, truly, um, amazing it was
0: (laughs) so so at what point at what point um were you home with the kids
1: uh jill was one and a half and ellen was three and a half when i started my bout as at home dad an old contact from heidi uh, of heidi's um called up and said you know it's a shame you're not coming to philadelphia because there's a great opening down there So she went back to work full time, bought the wardrobe, professional, managing frickin woman. You know, I mean, she was bringing home the bacon and I was frying it up in a pan. And um, transitioning to being an at home dad for me was it was it was all fun and a big adventure at first. And then, you know, after even a few days, I was kind of looking for the help again, you know. Um, and I honestly, I think it's got to be for a guy to appreciate what it's like to be home um, full time and have that responsibility. I think you've got to be in for four to six months. I think it ought to be mandatory for every dad to do that, because it's at that point that you start despairing again and you have to work through it. And it was at despairing that despairing about what? That this is my life. That that what's next to eat and whether or not we have enough baby food and whether or not we have enough diapers and whether or not, you know, the house is going to be relatively clean for the weekend is this is it, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, through the first winter when the days were (laughs) when there wasn't even a lot of sunlight out. Um, you know that that got to be wearing too. We were we were a little bit lucky. I was in a nice neighborhood with um, with some other younger kids around, and I, there were some moms to talk to, and the whole nine. But um, I wanted
0: to ask you about that actually, because um, the at home parent culture is very much uh, very much rotates around mommies. Yeah, and still I, and does. I wonder, doesn't like it? how how yeah how do, how did you fit in with that culture?
1: I did, but I didn't. I, I remember going to the park with the kids and. I'd see all these clutches of moms kind of talking or whatever. And it was like this really interesting kind of um, cultural dance about actually wanting to talk, you know, wanting to feel like you're in it with somebody else, you know, but not knowing really how to go about it because I didn't know if it was all girls time over there, you know. So I felt I felt. I felt one of two ways. I felt kind of on the periphery um, in that kind of setting. The other thing is, you know, you're, you're going through the, the store, picking out baby food with one kid on your hip and the other one in the, in the, in the basket, and, and everybody thinks you're cute. So, and, it, and it's very dear for, for dad to be out with the girls doing the shopping. And I'm like, I do this all the time and I don't, I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't want your pity or your attention. Um, <laughs> this, the, this one time, um, in the middle of the night, Heidi got up and she was getting her period and there were no tampons in the house at all. There was nothing. And it was kind of like one or two in the morning. And um, and I got up and volunteered, actually, to go to the store because I needed to be that guy, right? So, <laughs> so I volunteered and we needed other stuff anyway. I had this whole like shopping list on my mind. So I went to the store to get like tampons and diapers and baby food. I can't remember exactly what the list was. Um, but all of a sudden, in the middle of doing this, in a dumping down rainstorm, drenched, walking down the aisle, I realized what it must have looked like you know and and um and then I got to the checkout, and at the checkout counter was this like super cute girl who, at that point, was probably only five, six years younger than me or something, <laughs> and she was she was pretty good looking and everything and and I remember just feeling completely gross and disheveled and totally emasculated and sort of put the tampons. And I was like, I'll have these, please. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah.
0: What, what do you know now that you wish you had known in the first couple of years? <laughs>
1: Sorry, I'm chewing a piece of sandwich. Hold on, I have to answer. Oh, answered.
0: okay. Um, what kind of sandwich?
1: Peanut butter and jelly. <clears throat> I hadn't eaten since eleven o'clock this morning. Um, what do I? What do I wish I had known? Is that the question? What do I wish I had known? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I wish I had. Uh, um, I guess I would have known this with my rational mind back then, but I sure as hell didn't feel it. I wish I had known that there was an end. You know, the, the, the title of your podcast is really apropos because it's a really short time and it sure doesn't feel like it sometimes, you know, when those, um, when that, Horrible behavior toward my kids came out, and I would scream and yell at them. I remember one time I lifted Ellen up by the front of her shirt and pinned her against the wall with one hand and screamed in her face. And you know, how did I I do that? Uh, It's just, (laughs) I didn't feel embarrassed. Do you remember what it was about? Yeah. You want to know what it was about? It was about her not going up the stairs fast enough. That's what it was about. (laughs) That's what it was about. She was four years old, and she was not climbing the stairs fast enough to suit me after a long day, and it was just the end of the frickin' line. That's what it was about. I mean, how ridiculous is that? And her sister blanched and cried, and Ellen lost it, and I felt like the biggest piece of crap of a parent that you could possibly feel like. But there it is. I did that. I, and I did worse than that, too. I, I did plenty of things that I'm not all that proud of. Um, I, wish, I wish I knew that there was an end point. Um,
0: yeah. You know, I think um, most moms that I talk to who, who are willing to be honest about, about you know, early motherhood um, all admit that we have felt like failures for one reason or another, or for, maybe for many reasons. Is that something that resonates with you?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. To this day, it resonates with me for different reasons. Every day, there's no end to parental guilt. And that I am so sorry to say, gets worse, not better. Um, (laughs) I'm, I'm really sorry about that. It'll get better for a little while. But that that part actually gets worse. At least it did for me. Everything's, you know, it's all your own experience, right? But I mean, going, going, going through the stuff of, of, of adolescence and teen and high school and, and on um, has, been, has been trying in a whole different kind of way, you know, and I never thought that I, I would yearn for the simplicity of an infant. Uh, but boy, it's, it's no picnic. <laughs> it's no picnic on the other side. It's, it's, um, it's a different deal.
0: Tell, tell me what I have to look forward
1: to. How old's your kid?
0: 18 months tomorrow.
1: Oh, congratulations. That's a Thank biggie. You. Um, you have, boy, I mean, you have a lot to look forward to in the pretty immediate future when you don't need to like be physically there with her quite as much as you are right now. it's uh, How many times have you been away from Sasha for more than like an hour or two?
0: Oh, not very many. Right. Probably about, like,
1: five. Right. <laughs> you know? And, and you have that to look forward to. And that's a good thing. Um, that's a good thing because it's just about changes. It's about being able to appreciate and, and understand what it's like for the child to do something. On her own or his own, you know, all this, all the things that they make Hallmark cards about, you know, about taking the training wheels off for the first time and taking the water wings off for the first time and, you know, Christmases and all that kind of stuff. There's all of that, but it's, it's these little tiny little subtle moments you know when i remember this one time when ellen was out front and she was still pretty little and we had a golden retriever who was just really nice tempered and they were playing in the leaves together and for the first time ellen like really understood how to handle a dog you know Mm -hmm. like really how to handle a dog like how to um how to not scold her too severely, but give her a little tug and make her pay attention and make her sit down and all that kind of stuff. And Ellen was maybe like five or six at this point, And she was doing it well. And I was saying to myself, oh, my God, where'd that come from? She would have learned some of that just from watching us and being able to repeat it. But She got that, you know, she got that. And I don't know where it came from. All these little all these little things along the way where you just get to watch and enjoy and and share. You have so much to look forward to, Hill. Oh my gosh. Tom
0: Ketchkumethy is the assistant dean and director of communications at the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Education. He and his wife, Heidi, are now empty nesters. Their second daughter just started college. Um, Heidi is a pediatric dietitian. To see her recommended reading on how to feed your children, go to our website, longestshortesttime.com. And as always, if you'd like me to consider your story about a surprising struggle in early parenthood for this podcast, go to longestshortesttime.com and click Contact.
2: I'm standing outside Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Inside, there are like a trillion objects, and I have to go in there and find ten. So we open a drawer here, and there's Indiana Jones's jacket and Indiana Jones's whip. What is this? Prince donated this <gasps> I'm Asif Manvi, and I am lost at the Smithsonian. Where do I begin? This place is obviously full of fascinating stuff.
1: Fonzie's jacket worn by Henry Winkler on Happy Days.
2: There are 156 million objects in the Smithsonian's collections. Here are Muppets. These aren't just objects. They're pieces of America's self-identity. I'm looking at a a robe with the name Muhammad Ali. Only 10 episodes, only 10 objects. That's... Pretty amazing. Lost of the Smithsonian is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Vacations are always good.
0: Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com,
1: call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, malta and Ecuador.